Hello and welcome to part 2 of episode 55 and the next subject is sex education. This is in The Guardian. Birmingham Primary School in LGBT row cleared by Watchdog. Birmingham Primary School at the centre of a dispute with parents over lessons about LGBT rights has been cleared of any wrongdoing by Ofsted. Inspectors visited Parkfield Community School in Saltley, Birmingham last month after parents complained the lessons promoted gay and transgender lifestyles and were being taught to pupils who were too young to understand. On the basis of the inspection, the school's watchdog ruled in favour of the school on Tuesday, praising its record on promoting tolerance, acceptance and mutual respect and confirming its Ofsted rating of outstanding. The school attracted national attention after after parents staged protests outside the entrance and some withdrew their children from classes because of its approach to LGBT and equalities education. Well, at least some good comes of it then. Inspector said there was a small vocal minority of parents who believed the school's equalities curriculum focused disproportionately on LGBT issues and was not taught in an age-appropriate way, but they found no evidence to support this. They said their inquiries found most Parkville parents supported the curriculum and understood the school was helping their child play a positive role in modern British society. The report followed a short inspection known as a Section 8 No Formal Designation Visit, which enables Ofsted to pursue concerns that have been brought to its attention. In Parkville's case, inspectors were sent in to investigate concerns about aspects of the effectiveness of leadership and management in the school, including governance. After interviewing school leaders, teachers, governors, pupils and parents, the senior inspector, Peter Humphreys, concluded, I am of the opinion that at this time safeguarding is effective. In addition, leaders and those responsible for governance have maintained the high standards of education seen at the previous inspection in May 2016. The report praised the school's work with pupils to promote mutual respect and understanding. Pupils talk knowledgeably and perceptively about how individuals and groups of people may be different to them in terms of, for example, their disability, age, race, religion, belief or no belief, gender and sexual orientation, he said. When pupils summed up the views of many when they said, we look out for and after people who are different so that we can help one another. Respect, tolerance, understanding and acceptance of others' differences underpin the work of the school. In January, The Guardian reported the school was forced to defend its LGBT quality lessons after 400 predominantly Muslim parents signed a petition calling for them to be dropped from the curriculum. Last week, Parkfield said it had stopped the lessons, which would resume only after a full consultation with every parent. The assistant head teacher, Andrew Moffat, who was awarded an MBE for his work in equalities education, said he was threatened and targeted by a leaflet campaign after the school piloted an education program about equalities called No Outsiders. Devised by Moffat, who was among the finalists for a global teaching prize that will be awarded later this month, its ethos is to promote LGBT equality and challenge homophobia in primary schools. Many schools around the country have adopted the programme. Humphreys said almost all the 95 parents who responded to an Ofsted questionnaire and those who spoke to inspectors supported the school. However, a very small but vocal minority of parents are not clear about the school's vision, policies and practice. This group of parents feel that staff do not sufficiently listen to their concerns, he added. Their view is that the personal, social, health and economic education and equalities curriculum focuses disproportionately on lesbian, gay and bisexual issues and that this work is not taught in an age-appropriate manner. Inspectors find no evidence that this is the case. Ofsted praised the school's positive links with parents but recommended further work to develop the school's engagement with them so they all have a clear understanding of the school's policies and procedures, the curriculum content and how it's taught. Mohammed Aslam, speaking on behalf of the parents, said he was disappointed with Ofsted and disputed that a small minority of parents had protested against the No Outsider lessons. The inspectors spoke to lots of parents during the visit, many of whom raised concerns about No Outsiders, but their grievances have not been reflected in the report, he said. Ofsted has praised the school's links with the parents, so the school had good links with parents then why have hundreds of parents been protesting about the lessons every week the parents who have raised concerns have yet again been humiliated they have made our children suffer and the local community suffer this is not what i call positive links 
Hazel Pulley, the Chief Executive of the Excelsior Multi Academy Trust, to which Parkfield belongs. So we are absolutely thrilled with the Ofsted report and feel that it accurately sums up the fantastic work going on in the school. And there's another article here on the Newsweek website from the 11th of March. Muslim parents pull kids from school promoting LGBT education, shout shame at gay assistant principal. Muslim students joined their parents in chanting against a gay assistant head teacher who had started a program to inform children about same-sex relationships. Some parents at Parkville Community School in Birmingham, UK, have objected to the LGBT program called No Outsiders that had been set up by Andrew Moffat, who won an order of the British Empire in 2017 for his efforts to promote equality and diversity in education. In the video, an unnamed speaker could be seen issuing a rallying cry outside the school to children and parents holding up placards. He said that the inclusiveness program was not just about telling people there are other families and other types of lifestyles that exist. It is actually aggressively promoting them, giving a positive spin and telling people that it is okay for you to be Muslim and for you to be gay, the son reported. Well, it is. It goes on. The protester then chants, Mr. Moffat. Shame, shame, shame. And school children and parents start to join in before lambasting the assistant head teacher for trying to reinterpret our religious scripture. Our beliefs are not here to be changed. This is an aggressive indoctrination that we are against. If it was not aggressive promotion, then you would not have had all those parents come out on the street. As I've said to you, this program is very toxic. Not only are we going to have it abolished at this school, but in every school in Birmingham and every school in the country. West Midlands Police are investigating to see if the speech broke any laws. The force said no formal complaints had been made, although it was investigating homophobic graffiti on the school premises. Earlier in March, Muslim parents withdrew about 600 children from the school over the lessons Birmingham Alive reported. Maria Ahmed, whose four-year-old daughter is among the pupils at the school, launched a petition that was signed by around 300 parents to stop children in the school from receiving the lessons. I started a petition because it's just not the right age. We're getting children confused. I'm not saying we don't need to tell our children about it, but we want to tell them when we feel it's appropriate, she told the iNews website. Birmingham City Council's Cabinet Minister for Social Inclusion, John Cotton, said the local authority was appalled to see attempts to divide the people of our city by using insulting and incendiary language targeting the LGBT community, the BBC reported. Well, as ever, this is not black and white, there's shades of grey, because there always is. Muslim parents complain about indoctrination of gender propaganda, and quite rightly so, because that is what's going on. The reason kids are being taught at an ever younger age now about gender and different genders is not to teach them acceptance and to not discriminate against transgender people. There's only minority of transgender people in any school. It's getting more and more because of the propaganda, but there's only a minority at this moment. It's not about trying to limit discrimination of people of different gender. It's about confusing kids about their gender who were not confused before. But the Muslim parents complain about indoctrination. But they have, many of them, indoctrinated their kids with Islamic propaganda. Where instead of the child looking at religions dispassionately and coming to their own conclusions, including no religion, if that's what they choose, the parents impose a religion on them, in this case the Islamic religion. These parents don't have the self-awareness to see the contradiction. If you're born into a Muslim family, there's a very good chance you'll be a Muslim. If you're born into a Christian family, especially in places like the deep south of America, there's a very good chance you'll be a Christian. If you're born into a Jewish family, there's a very good chance you'll be Jewish. Is that by chance or propaganda? Some of it will be a natural outcome. Someone grows up, then they find out about religion. Then they decide that they want to take on a religion. That's a natural 
process of someone coming to a religious conclusion themselves. But in many, many cases, especially religions of the Middle East, that kind of area, it will be through propaganda and indoctrination. And I've talked about transgender and the fluid gender agenda a few times before in pay-per-view. In episode 5, I talked about drag queen story time, where drag queens are coming into schools to read stories to kids involving transgender, fluid gender themes. In episode 26, I talked about children being prescribed sex change drugs. In episode 48, I talked about how the word family has been deemed offensive, if you can believe such things. Google staff have complained about the word with one walking out of a meeting upon hearing the word. In episode 48, I talk about the deeper, darker, long game behind targeting the family unit. It's definitely a theme of the elite's agenda. And in episode 49, I talk about how sex education is being used as a vehicle to impose transgender, gender fluid and homosexual propaganda on children. Schools are merely programming centres for children. As I've explained before, I talk about education, the education system and schools in episode 21. And in episode 52, I talk about a new French amendment, which means that parents will now be referred to as parent one and parent two in schools, rather than mother and father. And parents in the UK are seeing their children taken into care if they disagree or question their child's choice of gender. And I talk about that in episode 52 as well. And these are some headlines that I came across. Stop cornering them boys and girls. Advisors who are paid £200,000. £200,000? Say using sex-specific terms in the classroom is unfair to transgenders, even though many classes won't have transgender children. But it's not about stopping discrimination. It's about imposing an agenda. Australia. Schools banned from using the terms mum and dad and boys told to dress up as girls in non-gender-specific free play. But it's not free play if you make them do it. Taxpayer-funded transgender lobby group demands free over-the-counter sex change hormones for children. You see, these lobbies, like the transgender lobby, they say they represent the group of people that they are the lobby for. But what is demanding free over-the-counter sex change hormones for children got to do with stopping discrimination against transgender people? Nothing. Because it's about imposing an agenda. Swapping gender norms in the name of equality. Icelandic school that makes boys paint their nails. What's that got to do with stopping discrimination against transgender people? Sarah Vine. Why I fear the gender agenda is harming our children. After a 4,415% rise in girls wanting to change sex last year. Where's that come from? Largely from the propaganda. School has 17 children changing gender as teacher says vulnerable pupils are being tricked into believing they are the wrong sex. We're seeing an agenda unfold to confuse children about their gender because of a much larger agenda, which I'll get to. So, in terms of the Muslim parents, Muslim parents complain about indoctrination of gender propaganda, and quite rightly so. But they have, many of them, indoctrinated their kids with Islamic propaganda where instead of the child looking at religions dispassionately and coming to their own conclusions, including the conclusion of no religion, if that's what they think, the parents impose a religion on them, in this case the Islamic religion. These parents don't have the self-awareness to see the contradiction. If you're born into a Muslim family, there's a very good chance you'll be a Muslim. If you're born into a Christian family, there's 
a very good chance, especially in the deep south of America, that you'll be a Christian. If you're born into a Jewish family, there's a very good chance you'll be Jewish. Is that by chance or propaganda? And isn't it interesting, as Ricky Gervais has said, isn't it funny that you're always born into the right God? Isn't that amazing? You're always born into the right God. Now, of course, some people's religion, more so in the West than places like the Middle East, but some people's religion will be a natural outcome. They'll grow up, they'll find out about religion whenever they find out about it, and then they'll take on the religion once they've come to their own conclusions. But in many, many cases, it will be through propaganda and indoctrination, especially in places like the Middle East. I've talked about religion in episodes 41 and 46. In terms of the wider agenda I mentioned just now, I've talked before about how the elite's agenda has designs on designer babies, synthetic humans, and how the transgender agenda plays into this in episode 18. But there's more to this agenda, however, because while babies are designed to be created synthetically from scratch in laboratories, the plan is to create humans, with the word humans in inverted commas, who will be created and designed to play a certain role in society. Aldous Huxley described this in Brave New World, published in 1932, because the elite's agenda is, is planned massively into the future. The elite that I talked about many times, they're less than 1%. And Aldous Huxley said, Natural reproduction has been done away with and children are decanted and raised in hatcheries and conditioning centres, where they are divided into five castes, from alphas to epsilons, designed to fulfil predetermined positions within the social and economic strata of the world state. And the world state is the world structure of control of the elite's agenda, the agenda I've described during the course of pay-per-view. And there's a couple of articles here on the subject of designer babies and synthetic humans. This is in The Guardian from November 2018. Super smart designer babies could be on offer soon, but is that ethical? In his new book, Blueprint, the psychologist Robert Plowman explains that it is now possible from our individual genome data to make a meaningful prediction about our IQ. When I discussed the topic with Plowman last month, we agreed on the need for urgent discussion of the implications. Before genetic selection of embryos for intelligence hits the market, we're too late. A company called Genomic Prediction, based in New Jersey, has announced that it will offer that service. New Scientist reports that it has already begun talks with American IVF clinics to find customers. They won't be in short supply. Before we start imagining a Gattaca-style future of genetic elites and underclasses, there's some context needed. That is what's planned, by the way. The article goes on. The company says it is only offering such testing to spot embryos with an IQ low enough to be classed as a disability and won't conduct analyses for high IQ. But the technology the company is using will permit that in principle. And co-founder Stephen Hushu, who has long advocated for the prediction of traits from genes, is quoted as saying, if we don't do it, some other company will. The development must be set to against what is already possible and permitted in IVF embryo screening. The procedure, called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, involves extracting cells from embryos. 
at a very early stage and reading their genomes before choosing which to implant. It's been enabled by rapid advances in genome sequencing technology, making the process fast and relatively cheap. In the UK, PGD is strictly regulated by the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, which permits its use to identify embryos with several hundreds of rare genetic diseases, of which the parents are known to be carriers. PGD, for other purposes, is illegal. Just a point on where it says rapid advances in genome sequencing technology. I've said before that the technology outside of the public arena is light years ahead of anything we see in the public arena. And also, once you understand that the body, as I've explained in episodes 24, is a computer, then you can advance very quickly just from understanding that. And beyond what we see in the public arena, the understanding about the body and the brain and the mind is far advanced of what we see in the public arena. The article goes on. In the US, it's a very different picture. Restrictive laws about what can be done in embryo and stem cell research using federal funding sit alongside a largely unregulated laissez-faire private sector, including IVF clinics. PGD to select an embryo's sex for family balancing is permitted, for example. There is nothing in there is nothing in U.S. law to prevent PGD for selecting embryos with high IQ. But what exactly does that mean? The work of Plowman and others has shown over the past few years that correlations exist between the code and our genomes and pretty much any trait you can think of, including IQ and academic achievement. Such links to complex traits as opposed to single gene diseases are usually invisible for any individual gene, but become significant when the influence of hundreds or even thousands of genes are summed in polygenic scores. Polygenic scores are basically looking at DNA and differences in DNA to predict genetic inclinations or tendencies. The article goes on. These relationships are, however, statistical. If you have a polygenic score that places you in the top 10% of academic achievers, that doesn't mean you will ace your exams without effort. Even setting aside the substantial proportion of intelligence, typically around 50%, this seems to be due to the environment and not inherited. There are wide variations for a given polygenic score, one reason being that there's plenty of unpredictability in brain wiring during growth and development. So in the service offered by genomic prediction, while it might help to spot extreme low IQ outliers, is of very limited value for predicting which of several normal embryos will be smartest. Imagine, though, the misplaced burden of expectation on a child selected to be bright who doesn't live up to it. If embryo selection for high IQ goes ahead, this will happen. What's more, the many genes involved in a polygenic score for intelligence are in no sense genes for intelligence. They will have many roles. If you're selecting for intelligence, you don't know what else you might be selecting for, for better or worse. So the science behind embryo IQ testing is still shaky, but before we get too indignant about the horrors of designer babies, bear in mind that already we permit, even in the UK, prenatal screening for Down syndrome, a disability that produces low to moderate intellectual disability. It's not easy to make a moral or philosophical case that the screening offered by genomic prediction for low IQ is any different. There may be more uncertainty, but given not all IVF embryos will be implanted anyway, can we object it to being the scales? And how can we condone efforts to improve a child's intelligence after to birth but not before. The questions are complicated. How to balance individual rights against what is good for society as a whole? When does avoidance of disease and disability shade into enhancement? Should society be more receptive to disability rather than seeing it as something to be eradicated? When does choice become tyranny? Well, if this was being done benevolently, those would be valid questions, and they are valid questions. But when you realise that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven, and that 
we're looking at a malevolent agenda driving the direction of human society, then all those questions are answered when you understand that. The agenda doesn't want what's good for society as a whole. It wants a malevolent outcome. The article goes on. In the UK, we are extraordinarily lucky to have the HFEA, which frames binding regulation after careful deliberation and acts as a break so that technology does not outrun the debate. Embryo selection needs robust regulation that societies can be confident in, says Ewan Burney, director of the European Bioinformatics Institute in Cambridge. And the article finishes by saying, leaving a matter such as this to unregulated market forces is dangerous. And that was written by Philip Ball, a science writer. Well, it is dangerous, but... As I said, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven or synthetic people-driven. And there's another article here from technologyreview.com, MIT Technology Review. Rewriting life. Designer babies are not futuristic, they're already here. At first, Matthew assumed the weakness in his knee was the sort of orthopedic nuisance that happens when you turn 30. It was weeks before he consulted a doctor and months before it occurred to him that there could be a connection between his worsening limp and a cousin's shoulder problem when they were kids. DNA testing confirmed it. Matthew, like his cousin, had a genetic form of dystonia, a condition where muscles contract uncontrollably. Their grandfather most likely had dystonia as well. I'd met Matthew only a few months earlier when he'd married my friend's daughter Olivia in one of those hip old New York hotels with an elegant downtown vibe. Since I was the only genetic counsellor of their acquaintance, they brought their questions to me. With their permission, I am sharing their story. I have changed their names to preserve their privacy. Matthew was lucky. His was a mild version of DYT1 dystonia, and injections of Botox in his knee helped, but the genetic mutation can cause severe symptoms. Contractures in joints or deformities in the spine. Many patients are put on psychoactive medications, and some require surgery for deep brain stimulation. Their kids, Matthew and Olivia, were told, might not be as lucky. They would have a 50-50% chance of inheriting the gene variant that causes dystonia, and if they did, a 30% chance of developing the disease. The risk of a severely affected child was fairly small, but not insignificant. My friends learned that there was an alternative. They could undergo in vitro fertilization and have their embryos genetically tested while still in a laboratory dish. In vitro, or in vitro, means studies that are performed with microorganisms, cells, biological molecules outside their normal biological context test tube experiments basically using a technology called pre-implantation genetic testing they could pick the embryos that had not inherited the dyt1 mutation it would be expensive costs for ivf in the u.s average over twenty thousand dollars for each try and testing can add ten thousand dollars or more and it would require an unpleasant two-week process of ovarian stimulation and their harvesting it wasn't the way i saw myself making a baby olivia told me but they wanted what the procedure could offer them a guarantee that dystonia was eliminated for the next generation and beyond matthew and olivia don't think of themselves as having a designer baby that term has negative associations suggesting something trivial discretionary or unethical they were not choosing eye color or trying to boost their kids sat score they were looking out for the health and well-being of their future child as parents should public opinion on the use of assisted reproductive technology consistently draws a distinction between preventing disease and picking traits the johns hopkins genetic and public policy center which contacted over 6,000 people through surveys and focus groups from 2002 to 2004 summed up its findings this way in general americans approve of using reproductive genetic tests to prevent fatal childhood disease but do not approve of using the same test to identify or select for traits like intelligence or strength the dystonia gene is in a gray zone some people born with it live perfectly healthy lives yet presumably few parents would criticize matthew and olivia's choice to weed it out all embryo testing does fit 
the designer label in one important way. However, it is not available to everybody. Matthew and Olivia opted into what is a quiet but significant trend. Although the number of couples using this technology remains small, it is growing rapidly. According to the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, the number of US IVF attempts with single gene testing rose from 1,941 in 2014 to 3,271 in 2016, an increase of almost 70%. This is only the beginning. As the price of genetic testing of all kinds drops, more adults are learning about their genetic makeup as part of routine medical care and discovering specific genetic risks before pregnancy. But these people are still most likely to be affluent and educated, like Olivia and Matthew. While they consulted with IVF clinics, Olivia's own brother and his wife got news of a gene that increased risk for cancer in their kids. If you can get rid of it, why wouldn't you, he asked. Cost was not a concern for these couples, but it is an obstacle for many Americans. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that 1.7% of babies born in the U.S. today are conceived using IVF. It's much higher in countries that publicly fund assisted reproductive technology. 4% in Belgium, 5.9% in Denmark. A 2009 study found that 76% of the medical need for assisted reproduction in the U.S. is unmet. Insurance doesn't normally cover IVF in the U.S. except for a handful of states where coverage is mandated. Even policies that cover fertility treatment are inconsistent in what they reimburse. Coverage for pre-implantation genetic testing is downright Kafka-esque. Under many policies, testing the embryos is covered, but the IVF procedure itself is not because the couples are not infertile. The analogy I like to use, says James Griffo, director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, NYU Langone Health, is if you were having coronary bypass surgery and they didn't pay for crack in the chest. At least part of the reason the IVF industry is growing is not that more people can afford it, but that those who can are paying for new kinds of services. Egg banking, for example, is now aggressively marketed to younger women as an insurance policy against age-related infertility. In 2011, egg banking did not even exist as a category in the CDC's annual report on IVF. By 2016, storing eggs or embryos was the purpose of 25% of all IVF cycles. Elite companies like Facebook offer egg freezing as a perk, but for most people it remains a luxury. Cost is not the only barrier. Reproductive technology is less acceptable in racial, ethnic and religious groups, where being seen as infertile carries a stigma. Language barriers can reduce awareness and referrals. Geography also plays a role since IVF clinics cluster in areas of greatest demand. Presumably many people would make the same decision as Matthew and Olivia if given the option, but many don't have that choice. Our discomfort around designer babies has always had to do with the fact that it makes the playing field less level taking existing inequities and turning them into something inborn. If the use of pre-implantation testing grows and we don't address these disparities, we risk creating a society where some groups, because of culture or geography or poverty, bear a greater burden of genetic disease. What could change society more profoundly than to take genetic disease, something that has always epitomized our shared humanity, and turn it into something that only happens to some people? So this synthetic human agenda is happening now, and we've not seen anything like where it's meant to end. I've talked before about predictive programming or preemptive programming where through entertainment the media corporations novels the agenda is placed in front of people and is absorbed by the subconscious mind and the more imagery absorbed the more a person becomes familiar with it and there's a channel 4 show called humans which features synthetic humans specifically created with certain skills there's a website for the show which talks more about this theme in terms of the show in our world it's designed to be all about control and if humans are created synthetically then they can be customized with pre-planned traits and skills humans with the word humans again in inverted commas will be created to do the jobs dictated by the state at the local level in their region as the idea as i've said before is to break up countries into regions 
and each region will be responsible for a certain focus. So although parents are quite right to have concerns, legitimate concerns, they're being ignored because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The final subject is... Bank branches. This is in the Daily Mail. Cash machine closures at banks will hit the elderly and vulnerable the hardest, warns city watchdog as ATMs are scrapped across Britain. The closure of bank branches hurts the most vulnerable and hammers small businesses, the head of the city watchdog said yesterday. Charles Randell, chairman of the Financial Conduct Authority, warned that banks left devastation in their wake when they abandoned the high street. His intervention suggests that the watchdog can step in after avoiding the problems for years. When banks and free-to-use ATMs disappear, families can be forced to make long-round trips for cash, making it much harder to buy essentials. Cash is used for a third of all payments in Britain, and 2.2 million people use it for all their day-to-day spending, despite efforts by finance companies to get customers to spend by card or over the internet instead. The FCA found that the areas that lose bank branches typically have higher unemployment and poverty than average, leaving the poor hit hardest. Working in bank branches that close down lose their jobs for a start. Older people are often less willing to go online when their local bank closes and may not be as adept at using the internet, putting them at greater risk of being scammed. Mr. Randell said this wonderful life of online banking and mobile payments is cold comfort if you can't do these things. Many of these people are on low incomes. Having to pay to access cash disproportionately affects those who are least able to afford it. Cash is also disproportionately used by older people. We're Branches closed, we don't see any increase in mobile banking among the over 60s. So while most people adapt to alternative technology, some need more help. And if you're poor, online banking means access to a computer or paying for data on your phone. Shopkeepers tend to be hit badly too, Mr. Randell said. When a bank branch disappears, it gives shoppers one less reason to visit the high street, affecting footfall for neighbouring businesses. Business owners can also be forced to travel further with large amounts of money to make deposits. Mr. Randell said, without local branches to deposit cash, it's costing businesses and charities more to accept it, transport it, deposit it, and increases their risk of being robbed. He said that when he visited the town of Burslem in Stoke-on-Trent, which no longer has any branches or free 24-hour cash machines, he was struck by the problems it caused for families and firms. The FCA is keen to address the problems caused by branch closures, but Mr. Randell said it could not simply prevent the last branch in the town from shutting because this would mean that in areas with just two or three branches left, closures might happen more quickly as lenders rush not to be last. He added, we would need a system for recognising the cost of staying open borne by the last bank, deciding who should bear those costs and whether and how the bank should receive a return on its capital. And there's another section here, short section. A half-day round trip to the nearest cash point. The village of Wellwyn in Hearts will lose its last bank branch on March 29th. To get to the nearest bank after Barclays closes, residents will have to travel four miles to Wellwyn Garden City. Villager Sandra Kiriakides, 74, said buses are every 40 minutes to Wellwyn Garden City. A trip to the bank can end up taking half a day. Wellwyn, which has 8,400 residents, has a post office with limited cash reserves. Its owner, Deline Miller, 52, said a proportion of the population do not use online banking and need banks. There was a need for ATMs and cash. A Barclays spokesman said last night that the bank would pay for an ATM to be installed in the village. Well, I've talked before about bank branches closing in episode 39. This is another step towards the cashless society. People think the cashless society is about convenience. And as long as cash exists, then it is convenient. But you've now got contactless pay and Apple Pay, and these are stepping stones to the cashless society. The point at which the cashless society crosses the line from convenience to control is when cash no longer exists, and thus dissidents 
those challenging and or exposing the system authority will be denied access to credit and with no cash that means no purchase and that means total control which is the whole idea the high street will obviously be affected due to bank branch closures and this as i've said before is the idea the idea is to get rid of business and replace it with corporations atms disappear and also has implications for the high street and i talk about that in episode 31 the elderly and vulnerable will of course be the hardest hit and that's also the agenda because of the depopulation agenda i've mentioned many times before the reason for which i explain in episode 10 as i keep saying society is agenda driven not people driven Another aspect of this on the subject of the elderly being most affected by bank branch closures is that increasingly different parts of daily life in society are going online and becoming digitised and this can appear on one level to be about convenience but one of the effects it has is not just making it harder for elderly people to do banking but it's also an expression of what's known as future shock whereby changes in society change so much and or too quickly or to a point where previous generations feel left behind. One of the effects this has is making elderly people feel almost, even if only on a subconscious level, prepared to die. They feel more ready for death. This plays into the depopulation agenda, the reason for which I talk about in episode 41 as well as episode 10. I covered a story in episode 16 about robots replacing humans in care homes, and this has obvious implications for elderly people who are not, many of them anyway, used to using technology and interacting on a technological level. I've talked before about a Rockefeller insider called Dr. Richard Day, specifically in episode 18. Day made many predictions, but it's not really a prediction. Prediction implies guesswork. It was insider knowledge of the agenda. If you know the agenda, then you can predict the future because unless anything intervenes to stop it, then it's going to happen. But Day made many predictions with the word predictions in inverted commas. And he made these predictions in 1969. And when people look at what Dr. Richard Day said, it's incredible. Not just in theme, but in fine detail. Richard Day was quoted by someone who heard him speak who took notes on what he said. And then years later, did a series of interviews about what Dr. Richard Day said. In terms of future shock, he didn't call it that. But in terms of future shock, he said, some things that would help people realize that they had lived long enough. He mentioned several of these, he being Dr. Richard Day. I don't remember them all. Use of very pale printing ink on forms that people are necessary to fill out so that older people wouldn't be able to read the pale ink as easily and would need to go to younger people for help. Automobile traffic patterns. There would be more high-speed traffic lanes. Traffic patterns that older people with their slower reflexes would have trouble dealing with and thus lose some of their independence. And another one, this is me speaking now, another one people come across all the time is certain food jars have the lids on so tightly when you buy them and people say what about an old lady trying to undo that lid what about if she had arthritis exactly it's all part of psychological preparation and i'm not saying that in every case all these things that are part of this preparation are knowingly done not necessarily but some of it will be it's all part of the psychological preparation for death to get elderly people to feel ready for death And if you feel prepared for death, the body is more likely to follow suit. If you feel that way, the body is more likely to reflect that. This is why people say, if you're young at heart, you've got more of a chance of living longer, depending on diet and environmental influences and the toxic world we live in, which I talk about in episode 25, and body care or lack of it. All these things go into the mix, but generally, how you feel can have a big impact on how long you live. 
but if you can make people prepared to die in the way I'm talking about, elderly people, elderly people who know that they're of a certain age already, that is close to death, or could be, then the body's more likely to follow suit. And when you look at the preparation I'm talking about, this is the fine detail level that the elite plan and implement their agenda. And when you have an agenda plan to affect every area of human life and society, then that will be the case. And this story is yet another reminder that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.